Well, I'm glad that you are here, and we're going to continue our study uh, tonight. Uh, we're starting in the book of Philippians, and just remind some of you, and for some of you who are new, I'll explain what we're doing. Uh, <clears throat> during this year, we've been looking at 10 different books throughout the Bible, reading a different book a month, and studying that book in the evening service. And so the book that we're studying now uh, is the book of Philippians. If you want to go ahead and open God's Word to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Um, and we're reading through it, the Philippians uh, book, a little bit differently this time. Um, last week, we read through just uh, the regular way, chapter a day. And then on the weekends, I'm saying on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, read anything you want to in Scripture. But basically on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, since there's four chapters, just read a chapter a day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So the first week, just read it normally. Second week, read it in a different translation. Third week, read it in a different translation. Another translation. Get those at Bible.com, by the way. And then the fourth week, I think it was outline the book uh, as you read it each day. And then the fifth week, read it one more time and pick a lesson a day that you're going to try to put into your life. So those outlines are out there if you'd like to pick one up just to join us in that journey through the book of Philippians. I hope you've got your Bibles with you uh, open to the book of Philippians and let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for those who have testified today both this morning and this evening of their faith in Christ. And may many others follow in their footsteps as they too recognize the joy of following Jesus and the joy of having our sins forgiven through the cross of Jesus. And so, Lord, now would you speak to us through your word in this time together. May you be the teacher through your Holy Spirit as we look at your word. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> William Vanderhaven said, Joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ. Oh, that was a beautiful statement. I want you to hear that again. Joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ. More than any other book in the Bible, Philippians would agree with that statement. We were just in the deacons meeting, and just in the deacons meeting, in prayer time, people were, were sharing one problem after another, just very serious health issues that some in our church family are experiencing. Reminding me again of just the truth of this statement. Is it possible to have joy in the midst of trouble? And the writer of Philippians would say, yes, joy is not the absence of trouble. It is the presence of Christ. Philippians, if you know anything about Philippians, is a letter of joy. It, it just overflows with expressions of gratitude and joy. It's filled with so many wonderful, memorable passages of Scripture. The book we're going to be reading and studying uh, this month is, for many of us, probably your favorite book of the Bible. Uh, Paul was writing to his longtime friends at Philippi, and, and he just kind of bears his soul in this book. This, this, is not, this is not a treatise as much as it is a personal letter. Paul it writes a personal letter to his friends at Philippi. It is very personal. He reveals his soul. He reveals some of the struggles he has experienced. He reveals what he's thinking and what he's feeling. And, and Paul is very transparent in this letter. And uh, it, it's a letter that, that really has so many memorable 
passages. And for that reason, because it's something we can all relate to, uh, for many people, it is their favorite book of the Bible. I'm just curious, just taking a poll for you, how many would say, you know, Philippians is, is at least one of my favorite books of the Bible? Raise your hand. All right, hands all over. It is indeed, for many of you, your favorite or one of your favorite books. And so, as we have done in each of these studies, we're going to watch this video. Uh, this one, is, I think, is about nine minutes, and it's just an, an overview, an artistic overview of the entire book of Philippians. And then we'll come back and uh, kind of dig into that a little bit more. So let's watch this video together. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. 
Paul then turns to the Philippians and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism, but their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution, but they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1-3, through and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the king of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is, and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus and they are worthy of imitation. Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven. 
Which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his greatest teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment, its simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. He saw his entire life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And you can sense in this letter his close connection to Jesus, his awareness that Jesus' love and presence is closer than his own skin. And that's what gave him hope and humility in his darkest hours. And so Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal transforming encounter. That's the kind of Jesus that Paul invites others to follow. And that's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. The vivid story of Paul's visit to Philippi is told in Acts chapter 16. Would you open God's word? Acts chapter 16. We we're going to survey kind of how he got there and how the church got started. We're going to do that tonight. And then uh, next Sunday night, we'll actually be studying the letter itself. Uh, in a few lines in Acts chapter 16, uh, we are uh, privileged to see the work of the Holy Spirit guiding Paul on his second missionary journey, guiding Paul and his companions to the area of Macedonia where the church of Philippi would be established. So in Acts chapter 16, I need to open my Bible, Acts 16, uh, verses 6 through 10. I want to start there as we see the story. Again, Paul is on his second missionary journey, traveling from place to place, carrying the gospel, starting churches, and here's what we read beginning in verse 6. <clears throat> Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Uh, guys, if you go ahead and put the map up, I want to follow this scripture on the map as best we can. So this is a map of Paul's second missionary journey. Now down in the bottom right corner, Jerusalem, this would be Israel right here. And so starting in Jerusalem, going this way, you can see his track, and, and look at the text and find it on your map. It says... Um, they went throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So right here is Galatia, the region of Galatia. And then Phrygia is right here. 
So Paul was going through this area, trying to take the gospel wherever it was needed. And it says, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So as he was traveling, he kept trying to find, where is it that you want us? And as they were going through Asia, the Spirit of God kept saying, no, it's not here. Uh, This is not the place for you to share, at least not now. And when they came to the border of Mysia, you see Mysia right there. When they came to the border of Mysia, look what it says, they tried to enter Bithynia. Bithynia is north right there. So God wouldn't allow them to speak here, the gospel. And so they said, well, maybe we need to go north. Maybe we need to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of God would not allow them to do that. So, verse 8, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas, right here on the coast. You see Troas right there. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia, I have my glasses on. It should be in this area. Where is that? No, where is it? There it is. There it is. Macedonia. So, Paul is at Troas. And while he's here at Troas, he has a vision of a man across the water, across the sea, a man of Macedonia. He had this, this vision. So during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, and this is so important, concluding, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and probably Luke set out for Macedonia to take the gospel to new territory. Now there's a side note I want you to notice. It's it's just a a little side note that you might want to note. It's circled in my Bible. Would you look at verse 10 and you see the word we, the personal pronoun we. This is where the passage, if you're actually really studying the book of Acts, this is where the we passages of Acts begins. Now, why is that important? Well, look in verse 6. In verse 6, the writer or the author of Acts talks about Paul and his companions and how they traveled to all of these areas. And then in verse 7, he says, and they came to the border of Mysia, and they tried to enter all of these places. And verse 8, and they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. It's always they, they, they. But that changed in verse 10. Paul had a vision we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Now, why is there this difference where previously he's talking about they did this and they went there and they tried this, and, but now he says we. It's probably an indication that the author of Acts, which is Luke, that Luke joined them in Troas. That, that Luke was in Troas, right there, and when Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, came to Troas, Luke met them, Luke spent some time with them, and when they had the vision to go over to Macedonia, Luke probably went with them. And so the reason that's important is because what we're about to read throughout the book of Acts is a personal account, it's a personal testimony. Luke was an eyewitness of much of what you read in the book of Acts. So we read in verse 11, it says, From Troas we put out to sea, and we sailed straight for Semithrace, and the next day to Neapolis, And from there, we traveled to Philippi. And notice how Philippi is described, two ways. It's described as a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. All right, so they eventually made their way to Macedonia, and they made their way right here to Philippi. And Philippi is described as a Roman colony 
and a major city in the area, the region of Macedonia. Now, <coughs> let me tell you what a Roman colony is. This is kind of interesting. A Roman colony is really kind of a miniature Rome. A miniature Rome. Uh, it, it was a, a, a city that would mimic Rome in every way. They prided themselves in being Roman, even though they were per, probably not Roman by birth. You see, here's how a Roman colony was formed. When the military officers from Rome would retire, military soldiers, when they would retire from the military, sometimes they would go to certain areas and kind of settle there. And the reason they would go and settle in those areas was because the leaders in Rome would give them free land. The, 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 the Caesar of Rome would give them, listen, he'd say, listen, if you'll move to Philippi, I'll give you free land there. And so the military leaders and, and soldiers would move to an area, they would kind of incorporate that area, they would inhabit that area, they'd have free land, and, and they lived there as citizens of Rome. They had all the privileges of, though they were not living in Rome, they had all the privileges of being a Roman citizen. In fact, they prided themselves in being Romans. And they would model their government after the Roman government. Now, the reason that is important is because I want you to understand that Philippi was not just a city of Macedonia. Philippi was a Roman colony. In other words, it was fiercely loyal not to Jesus. They were fiercely loyal to Caesar. Why would they be fiercely loyal to Caesar? Somebody fill in the blanks for me. Why would they be fiercely loyal to Caesar? He'd given them their land, hadn't he? He had provided everything that they needed. So this was a city that was a Gentile city. If you, if you take notes, write this down. Philippi was a, and you put it in big caps maybe, Philippi was a Gentile city. It was, it, in fact, it was named after the father of Alexander the Great. This was a Gentile Roman type city. Now, here's why you need to know that. I'll put it in today's terminology. This was outside the Bible Belt. This was a city outside the Bible Belt, all right? This, this is not Jerusalem. This is not a religious city like Jerusalem. This was a city outside the Bible Belt, we would say today. So here's what you need to know. Paul, when, whenever he took the gospel to new places, he often did so. He often had the eye of a strategist. It's so intriguing to me. Under the, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, yes. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Paul chose places that were key cities in the communities he was, he was reaching. And it's interesting that even to this day, many of Paul's preaching points are still great cities in the world today. You ever thought about that? We still have Athens. We still have Rome. We still have Thessalonica. Paul took the gospel to key cities of the world so that the gospel would spread out from those key cities and it is amazing to me that now 2,000 years later approximately 2,000 years later many of those not all of them but many of those key cities are still cities of the world today he had the eye of a strategist taking the gospel to these key places so it could penetrate those areas now <clears throat> let's see how this church was formed look in verse 13 now remember they, they've made it to Philippi they're in Philippi. How do you go about starting a church in a new area? Here's how he did it. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, he went outside the city gate 
to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Question, look at the verse and answer this question. On the Sabbath, did they go to a synagogue? No. Where did they go? I wonder why they didn't go to a synagogue. There wasn't one. Yeah, there wasn't a synagogue. Why was there not a synagogue? Somebody tell me, why wasn't there a synagogue? All right, it was Gentile territory, and, there was, and that's absolutely true, but there's one other reason that I want you to know. Historically, historical Jewish sources indicate that in order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men in the community. In order to form a synagogue, there had to be at least 10 Jewish men in that community before you could form and build a synagogue. So what we learn as we look at this, Paul, when he got to Philippi, this not only was a Gentile pagan city, a Roman colony, it was also a place where there were very little Jews. In fact, when Paul went outside the city, it says that he went to the river. Look, look how it's described here. This, this is... Pretty interesting. It says, on the Sabbath, he went outside the city gate to the river. Look at this. Where we expected, we expected to find what? Yeah. You see, here's the way it worked. If you didn't have enough Jews to form a synagogue, if there were any Jews at all in the area, you could at least have a place of prayer. And many times, those places of prayer uh, were indeed by a, a river or a place with running water. A river, a pond, a stream. Uh, many times, though, it, it, preferably, I should say, it, the place of prayer was by a river, a place of running water, because that was viewed as being a holy place. The running water was viewed as being a holy place. So, when Paul came to Philippi, he knew there'd be no synagogue there. This is Gentile territory. There are very few Jews that even lived there. And so he went to the river expecting to find a place of prayer because all the Jews on the Sabbath need a place of worship. So they just kind of said, well, let's gather at the river and that'll be our place of prayer. That's where we will gather for worship. Now, again, look at verse 13. I want to ask you another question. Verse 13, when Paul came to this place of prayer, how many Jewish men were there? Zero. None. There was a small group, no, at least none that are listed by name, Right? It was a small group of Jewish women that had gathered for the place of worship. So let's look at the text again. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. By the way, if you go to Philippi today, there is still that river and there is a, 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 a place of prayer there still today. They've built a monument there. He said, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now... When Paul came to this place of prayer, we find out that so there's not very many Jews in the area. They don't have a synagogue. And then the Jews that are there, primarily women, and then there's not very many of them. There are just a few listed there. So not only was this a Gentile city, here's what you need to realize. This was a church, or this would one day be a church, that was predominantly a Gentile congregation. Very few Jews in the area at all. 
So it was predominantly a Gentile congregation. And the birth of the church, the core group, if you will, uh, was really three people. Let me tell you who they are. Lydia, the seller of purple, a demented slave girl who was used by her masters to tell fortunes, and a Roman jailer. Those three people became the core group of this new church. You know, when we go to to uh, Cleveland or when we go to Boston and we're planting churches, there's always that core group of people you're looking for. And, and you can always, later in years down the road, you can always talk about, well, we had this core group of five or this core group of ten. And, and you always remember the name of that core group that came together to form this church. The core group was an interesting group in Philippi. People God used to start this congregation was a Jewish businesswoman, successful probably rich Jewish businesswoman, a young lady who had been demon-possessed but was freed from that, and a Roman jailer, and then later his family. So let's read the text, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 14. <coughs> Excuse me. When, when, so Paul is sat down, verse 13, began to speak to the women and had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in the purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. That is, that's probably where she lived, and she's now moved to Philippi. And she was a worshiper of God, or she was a Jewish proselyte. She probably was not a Jew by birth. She was a Jew by, by choice, a Jewish proselyte. She had adopted the Jewish religion. That's what it means by a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. So again, we see the same thing we've looked at the last several Sundays. The Lord opened her heart to the message, then she was baptized. And she opened her home. She invited us to her home. She said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. More than likely, it was in her home that the church met. This young congregation that would one day be birthed into a church, they probably met in Lydia's home. Now keep reading. So that's one person of the core group, the the original team. Then verse 16, we learn about the other person who likely formed part of the core group. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Well, that's a pretty good thing to say, right? Except, look what happened. She kept this up for many days. So Paul's over there trying to teach, and he's trying to preach, he's trying to share the gospel, and she just keeps yelling this. These men are from the Most High God telling you how to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, not to the girl, but to the Spirit within the girl, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. She probably, the Bible doesn't say for sure, she likely gave her heart to the Lord and likely was a second person of the core team that formed this new church in Philippi. But the people didn't really like what happened. Verse 19, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews who are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful, look at this, unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. See, this was a Roman colony. They considered themselves Romans. Verse 22, the the crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they'd been severely flogged, not just flogged, but severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Now, stop right there. Everybody look up here and tell you something. If you just looked at this story from the perspective of what happened to Paul, you would say, man, that's awful. Flogged, beaten, mistreated, placed in jail. Oh my goodness, that's awful, the things that happened to Paul. But you know what what God was up to? God was about to add a third member to the core team to start that church. Look what happened. About midnight. Well, upon verse 24, upon receiving such orders, he put them into the inner cell, fastened their feet in in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. We read this this morning. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. I wonder why he didn't leave. I mean, if you were in prison, if you were chained, and all of a sudden the jail doors opened and the the chains fell off of you, don't you think it would enter your mind, I'm leaving. Uh, It's an interesting thing. Why... They did not leave. Maybe the Spirit of God told them to stay put. I don't know. Verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then he spoke the word of the Lord to them and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all of his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. And that was the core group that started the church in Philippi. A Jewish businesswoman, successful Jewish businesswoman. A slave girl, freed from demon possession. And a jailer, a Roman jailer, and his family became the core group that God used to plant a church in Philippi. Now, with that background, let me give you six characteristics of this letter. Six characteristics, just to kind of summarize the letter for you. Six characteristics of of this letter we call Philippians. I think these these six characteristics will make sense now that we've walked through uh, kind of the introduction in Acts. First, number one. Uh, This one is obvious, but it needs to be stated. Look on the map. You can see this corner right here. This is... this is the Europe, the edge of Europe, Macedonia. Here's the first characteristic. The Philippian church was the first church established in Europe. 
The first church. This is the first church to take root, to be planted in Europe. A new continent was taken for the gospel. Look on the map again, right? The gospel, right-hand corner, Jerusalem. It's where the gospel began. Now, I want you to notice, just follow the light. I want you to notice how the gospel has spread all the way across Asia or Asia Minor. And now the gospel is going across the water into Europe. Can I remind you this was before they had transportation like we have? I did a little research. I, this, this is not. This is just Google research. So it's you know I don't know how accurate it is, but I, but I did a little research. I said how far is it from Jerusalem? If we were to drive, of course we're talking about modern roads today, but if we were to drive, how far is it from Jerusalem all the way around? And I, I think I put in uh, Thessalonica because it's near there, and we don't have Philippi today. Yeah, there's Thessalonica. Uh, so. How, how far is it from Jerusalem driving all the way over to, to Europe, to Thessalonica or to Philippi? Here's what I found out. It's roughly 1,550 miles. Now, if you walk 2.5 miles a day, it's going to take you a while to get there, isn't it? You ride a donkey or a camel, you might get a little bit faster. It's going to take you a while to get there. We're talking months traveling months why to take the gospel to new places the philippian church was the first church established in europe not the only one but it was the first one characteristic number two there are no old testament quotations in this letter there are no old testament quotations can you tell me why that would be true why would there be no Old Testament? Because in many of Paul's letters, Paul was, a, Paul was raised as a Jew. He, w- he was raised on the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament. And in most of his letters, he's often quoting verses from the Old Testament to make his point. He didn't do that in, Phil- in, in the, uh, the letter to the church at Philippi. Why? Yeah, it's Gentile territory. Predominantly Gentile ter- pagan Gentile territory. They didn't, have, they didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't follow the Old Testament. They, these are not Jews. These are predominantly Gentiles. So there's no Old Testament quotations in the letter. Characteristic number three. Women occupied a prominent place in the church. Now Paul oftentimes gets a bad rap when it comes to women. Uh, he, he's often said, people often say that Paul was down on women, you know, all the things that he said in other letters about not letting women speak and all that kind of thing. And, and Paul really gets a bad rap regarding the role of women. Uh, but I, I think people really totally misunderstand. I think Paul elevated the role of women uh, in, the, in that day and time. But especially that is true in Philippi. Uh, let me just give you three points to put under the fact that women occupied a prominent place. Number one, uh, a woman was the first convert, Lydia. So the first lady, the first person saved in, in Europe was a woman. She was one of the founders of that church. Uh, so, and, and then there was a group of women that were at the first meeting. They were, they, they were there at that place of prayer. It was a group of women that, that was at that first meeting. And then in chapter 4, verse 2... Two women are mentioned as being prominent in the church. Now, 
to be fair, we also have to say they, they were fussing at one another. He said, I plead with you, Yodia and Syntyche, and you'll make up with one another. Stop fighting. But it was evident that these two women in this predominantly Gentile city, uh, the, these two women were, were prominent in the church. So women occupied, occupied a prominent place. Let me do these others real quick. Number four, the church of Philippi was generous in their financial support of Paul. Uh, we don't have the time to read it, but chapter 4, verses 10 through 16, Paul brags on the church. He said, when I left Macedonia, there was not one church that supported me. There was not one church that helped me except for you folks in Philippi. And you folks cared about me, and you supported me, and you even sent me uh, support when I was in Thessalonica. I wasn't even in your city anymore. You sent, you sent me funds there. Also, if you're write, writing notes, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5, when Paul uh, writes to the church at Corinth. He says, I want to tell you about the church of Macedonia and how sacrificially they gave, even though they were very poor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. So it was a generous church, financially supported Paul. Number five. <coughs> this is a, and we'll get into this more as we study the letter. This is a letter with a surprising theme. This is a letter with a surprising theme. The theme of Philippians is joy, and it's mentioned 16 times in four chapters. He was writing from prison. He had nothing to be joyful about. He had been severely flogged. He didn't have a whole lot to be joyful about, except, do you remember what we said at the very first? The very first we said, joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ. And in this letter, Paul says, I want to know Christ. And the joy of knowing Him. So it's a letter with a surprising theme. And then number six, I'll close with this. Philippians is full of Christ. Philippians is full of Christ. You see Jesus all over this letter. There are, there are write this down, there are 104 verses in Philippians. The whole book is four chapters long, 104 verses total. Four chapters, 104 verses, and in those 104 verses, there are 51 references to the Lord Jesus. 51 references in this short chapter, or short book of four chapters. It is filled with Jesus. So you just enjoy it as you read it. Again, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, study the book, a chapter a day, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you read something else in the Bible. And we'll just work our way through it. Come back next week and we'll dig into the book together, okay? God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight.